Welcome to the second Renal Week podcast on today, November 19th. We're back in beautiful uh, Denver, Colorado with a convention center that has as one of its hallmark features of a bear looking in the window. I'm not entirely sure what that bear is looking at, but it has it's a remarkable feature. The convention center is beautiful. It's large and airy and breezy. And probably the best part of this convention center is that it's allowed all of us to get some exercise uh, going from one part of the convention center to the other. So we should all come back to our jobs much more in shape than when we, than when we left. Today I have with me three distinguished guests. Dr. John Cedar from Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio, and another Ohioan, uh, Dr. Prabir Roy Chaudhry from Cincinnati, two parts of the state of Ohio and moving slightly away uh, again in a Midwestern state. Dr. Millie San Diego from the University of Michigan, welcome to all of you. What I'd like to do is to start out by thinking about the morning session. We had two really interesting talks one that pertained to dogs. Yesterday we learned about how important pigs were in cystic fibrosis and science in general. Today, John, we learned about the role of using dogs in genetics. Can you tell us about what you learned today? It was a terrific talk. I think you know, my initial thoughts when I saw the title was what, what was this going to be that would apply to uh, what I do, and I'm interested in genetics, and I think it's another example of how you can learn a lot from particularly non-traditional model organisms, and it was just a beautiful demonstration of, perhaps for the scientists, you know, different methodologies that could be applied to complex traits like chronic kidney disease in humans, as well as how things that you learn, genes that are discovered in other organisms, in this case the dog, provide leads and insights into human disease. And she concentrated on cancer, bone disease, size, but it was just a terrific uh, presentation. So Dr. Ostrander from the NIH who gave that talk started her presentation by asking us the question of what was the difference between a very small dog and a very large dog, and then went us through the rough coat a smooth coat uh, demonstration. Can you just recall some of that most interesting work that she presented? She started out, you know, with a really a fundamental issue, which was different in sizes and how they sorted out and basically identified a single set of markers in the genome that identified a gene that absolutely made sense. Insulin growth factor one being critical in regulating the difference in sizes in, in dogs went through a lot of other normal phenotypes, and then she ended up with focusing on her work in, in cancers and dogs and the insights it's provided to human disease. But don't you think you'll never look at a dog again without wondering what kind of coat they have and w whether they're small or whether they're large, and then, of course, whether you have curly hair as a human or whether you have straight hair? Right, absolutely. And whether or not you have a mustache. Exactly. What did you think of that discussion? I thought it was a great lecture, and you know, I, I really thought that the combination of the, the lecture yesterday on pigs and this one on dogs, in a way, it came together because there was a message in there. I think for everybody, not necessarily the the, the basic scientists. I think you know the message for the clinician was that uh, maybe the clinician's got to go back and you know ask a few more questions to the fellow. It's going to make clinicians, I hope, more 
you know, more curious about uh, about maybe the patients that they see. And for the researcher, of course, I mean, I think it's awesome to to see the sort of work that she presented, and hopefully, it'll help some researchers to maybe go into a different into a different direction. So, I, I thought the combination of those two translation lectures was was just superb. So, the other lecture that you're referring to is Dr. Kritz's lecture. Uh, who gave the Homer Smith uh, Award lecture, his main initial message was that we were forgetting the science of morphology and that we needed to go back and look under the microscope and recall all the wonders that we, we learned in medical school. I, I thought that was a great lecture. I, you know, in, in one phrase, I think he really made the point that morphology or, or anatomy remains king. And I think the second message that came out from that lecture was that it was impressive to see somebody go so deep and be so meticulous in one area. And you know, I think that that's inspiring to a lot of people that he spent his entire life, 35 plus years, really dissecting out the morphology of the glomerulus and the tubules. So very impressive. Millie, what did you find interesting uh, in today's sessions? Well. From the transplant standpoint, we have very three interesting sessions. Um, the first one was this afternoon, a meeting within the meeting session, where there were several presentations that went from the modification of donor organs to induce tolerance by modifying or inducing the production of specific cells, such as plasmocytoid dendritic cells, that can decrease decrease the immunogenicity of the transplant that I found that extremely interesting. So you have been a leader in this transplant field for a long time and tolerance has been talked about for a very long time. Did you hear new insights today that will allow you to understand tolerance or perhaps allow a tolerogenic moment in one of your transplant patients? Well, I think that it's going to take more than what we learn or we have done until now to induce tolerance. In what I learned today, I think it will be a combination between what we modify in the donor organ and at the same time what we modified in the immune system of the patient. Uh, to that end, there was an interesting presentation by Bob Gaston reviewing the most recent trials on Belatacept, which is a costimulatory signal blockade. And in this particular trials, one interesting observation has been that although there is quite a little bit of acute rejection early on, those organs who have acute rejection at the end end up being having better outcome in terms of function and graft survival than even those who were not treated with the medication and did not have rejection. So it suggests now that in order to induce a better immune response towards the organ, initially we need or we require some level of injury that will be reversible and this drug seems to be facilitating this. The other important aspect of this drug is that it seems to inhibit alloantibody production even if rejection occurs. An alloantibody has come up to be the most serious problem that we are confronting to uh, ensure a better survival of kidney transplants. The real problem, of course, with our 
transplant program is we don't have enough organs. And we have so many patients on our waiting lists. Uh, there were many sessions, I gather, about waitlist management or dealing with patients on the waitlist. What do you think of? Uh, the management of the patient and the waiting list is a serious problem uh, that requires active involvement of the general nephrologist, since the majority of these patients are followed in dialysis units by the general nephrologist. Uh, the problem we have in the management of these patients is that there is really no solid data that could guide the community to pursue one workup or the other. So if the patient wants to be followed for the risk of cardiovascular disease, the data shows that even in patients that undergo aggressive uh, workup, only 10% of patients or less end up requiring revascularization. And if we looked at this in a randomized fashion, there is no difference in cardiac events if the patient undergoes revascularization or not. So we still do not know what is the best pre-transplant cardiac workup that we should do in the waiting list to reduce cardiovascular disease. Revere, you were one of the individuals who pushed the American Society of Nephrology into wanting to expand into areas that the ASN has typically not ventured. In that regard, you've been most interested in developing a bioengineering uh, opportunity here at the ASN. This is the first year that an abstract category was even available. Were there any responses to that abstract call? I was absolutely delighted that the ASN had this new abstract category on bioengineering and informatics. Uh, we had the poster session today. I, th I thought it went up really well. There was a lot of energy, there was a lot of excitement, and you know, the nice thing about this, about uh, having bioengineering as a single entity is that you get all these people from diverse backgrounds, uh, engineers, radiologists, basic scientists, biophysicists, biophysicists, molecular biologists, and clinical nephrologists really all coming together and you know uh, I think that it's this sort of poster session that's going to promote cross-fertilization between different specialties and you know just just to give you an example uh, <clears throat> there was a poster for example on how sheer stress of fluid within the tubules affects tubular function and then hmm. two posters next to it there was a poster on hemodynamic shear stress in arteriovenous grafts and then a little bit further down there was a poster on a clinical algorithm to make sure that people get the right dose of EPO. And then two posters away, there was, there was a poster on how you can stimulate T cells to make EPO. So, you know, I, I think that there really was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. And I think there were people uh, who perhaps would not have otherwise come to the ASN. There was, there was uh, an engineer, for example, who, uh, whose main interest was MRI, and he was absolutely delighted that he had the session and he was so thrilled that he could actually ask nephrologists questions about the kidney because they had this incidental finding that when they did MRI with a particular type of uh, uh, cationic uh, uh, substance it actually lit up all the glomeruli and he was asking why do you think some of the glomeruli are lighter 
and others darker, and what does that mean? So why do you think that happens? I don't know. I, I think it may, you know, maybe there's, uh, I think it's linked up to perfusion, and, uh, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, juxta, juxta medullary glomeruli are different, but it's just, you know, I would never have thought of, thought of using MRI to try and find out why some glomeruli may be different in one part of the kidney from the other, so. The renal pathologist won't like any no, <laughs> new approach to non-invasively diagnosing glomerular disease. Well, no, I, I, I think we're still some distance away from that, but it, it, it so was too. good fun. It was good fun. Good. I think that session was terrific. We did something unusual for us, and we put a biomedical engineer on our training grant a year ago, and, and he was presenting his work uh, on the bioartificial kidney and was actually looking at shear stress in, in, in tubules and he thought it was terrific. There was a community here for him and uh, uh, he felt more engaged. And one of the reasons he chose to come to a, a physician's lab, he works with Bill Fizell, is because he wants to apply his engineering skills to medical problems. So it was wonderful that uh, there was that opportunity here. So John, you're a senior leader in nephrology. How do you motivate young investigators to embark on what otherwise would be a non-traditional pathway within the nephrology community. Are you talking in terms of non-physicians or? Well, bioengineering is not a traditional yeah. pathway within nephrology. How do you motivate individuals to move into these new directions? Well, I, th I think we have to really highlight the breadth and the excitement that's going on in, in nephrology, and I, every, every year when I come to this meeting, I realize how fast our science is moving forward, the kind of advances that are being made now, and we're certainly uh, doing as well, if not better, than a lot of other areas of medicine that traditionally get uh, more play than we do, like oncology, perhaps infectious diseases. And mm -hmm. when I'm recruiting people that aren't physicians, I tell them about the things that are going on, and and having those sorts of uh, methodologies, techniques, ideas showcased here just really brings home the fact that they didn't make a mistake and gets them excited about wanting to pursue their career and uh, write grants and soldier on. So how, what's the best way of, of increasing the number of those individuals that, who want to enter the nephrology space, who want to have careers in the broad spectrum of, of kidney disease, where do you find those individuals? I think you have to take advantage of opportunities to talk about what's going on in, in the field. I, I, I think the prime thing that uh, motivated me to go into nephrology was contact with senior nephrologists that were in the field then. And, and I think now, because of the pressure of time and commitments that we all have, we need to be out there talking about what's going on and getting people excited about what we're doing. So, Praveer, you're an interventional nephrologist. Well, uh, I'm very interested in, in that field. and We have an interventional nephrology program, and I hope to become an interventional nephrologist. But you have been instrumental in trying to push that general environment forward. Are more nephrology fellows interested in interventional aspects? I, I think there is a huge interest am, uh, amongst nephrology fellows uh, for interventional nephrology. And, you know, uh, I, I, I think that uh, uh, as interventional nephrology grows, uh, I've always felt that we're going to be pulling into nephrology maybe a different 
type of fellow. I think we're mm -hmm. going to be widening our net in terms of the types of residents who want to come into nephrology. And I've always felt that there are many fellows or many residents who go into cardiology because they love opening up vessels and they like interventional procedures, but a lot of them actually have a very academic mm -hmm. bent. So they like nephrology, but they don't go into it because there are no procedures. And, you know, I think we may, we may actually attract in uh, a lot of additional residents by having interventional nephrology. Linked to that, if I may, I think the other thing that, that it's important for us to point out to medical students and residents is that we are such a diverse and broad specialty. I mean, we go all the way from immunology and transplant and SLE to uh, biophysics and biomaterials in, in dialysis uh, uh, to long-term primary care of the dialysis patient to interventional procedures. And, you know, uh, it, it's really important for us to get that message out. And there was, in fact, a really nice poster session about education, about using new methods, you know, role-playing, for example, uh, having little stories about uh, nephrology. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that, that that was a great poster session uh, about how we can make nephrology more interesting, both to our residents and uh, to medical students. And John, you have made a career out of studying genetic uh, changes in our population. What interesting genetic studies did you have the opportunity to see today? Well, there was a, a session this afternoon on genome-wide association studies, uh, and each of the major consortia gave a progress report of where their results were. So, Carolyn Fox presented the data from CKD-GEN and discussed some of the data that had been published in their efforts to move forward. Uh, Afsim Parsa discussed the CRIC study, and Suda Yangar presented our data from FIND. And I, I think one of the, the take-home things that uh, I learned was that the genes that we're working with in the FIND consortium are different from those that Carolyn uh, talked about in CKD-GEN, suggesting they're different triggers for initiation, maybe progression, and then the end-stage disease that we study. And the consortia together are studying various aspects of that pathway of chronic kidney disease. So it was uh, quite an interesting session. And it, it was a nice seg to yesterday's session that where Martin Pollack and Jeff Kopp talked about the exciting data with APOL1 and African-American end-stage renal disease. Is there a way for all of these consortia to get together to pool their data, to learn from each other? Um, absolutely. And in fact, one of the nice things about the session is everybody was there, including people from Europe, and uh, there was a lot of discussion afterwards about how we're going to get together and do that, and there's some concrete plans for that to be happening. So, John, a huge amount of what happens at this wonderful meeting does not actually occur in the confines of a session. It occurs over lunch or it occurs in the hallways. How do you simulate that kind of really important discussion? Well, I mean, I, th I think it's an effort for people that are working with others elsewhere. We, you know, we certainly made an effort. There, there are only people I've only talked to on the phone that are in Germany, and we had the opportunity, everybody was here to, to get together and meet each other, and it really solidifies the collaborations and friendships that are growing from the collaborative science we're all doing now. There's a little bit of a feeling 
that genome-wide association studies may not provide as much information as we would have hoped several years ago, but yet when you hear the beautiful work that this morning from Dr. Ostrander with respect to her dog models, can you envision taking the information that you now know from the consortia studies in humans and think longitudinally where those studies could go with all of the wonderful technology that Dr. Ostrander talked about this morning. Oh, a a absolutely, and I, I think the APOL1 story is a good illustration of that. In fact, the you know previous report from Find and Jeffrey Kopp that identified the MYH9 gene actually gave us a position in the genome that allowed Martin to pursue that and then ultimately find the causal variant. So I, I think we're just at the beginning of an exciting time uh, that the positions that are being identified are pointing out regions in the genome that need to be studied. The other thing that I, I'd like to make a point about, there's been considerable amount in the popular press about GWAS being disappointing, but in fact, you can't confuse the effect size in a genetic study with the functional significance. And a great mm -hmm. example of that is the work that's been done in lipid genetics. In fact, the uh, uh, HMG-CoA gene has a very small contribution to overall lipid levels, but in fact that's the target for statins which have had a fundamental impact on cardiovascular risk. And hopefully we're on our way to finding similar stories with uh, kidney disease genetics. Humans tend to be outbred in contrast to the inbred, multiple inbred uh, strains that we heard about this morning in dogs. It's interesting you say that, Ron, because the, the fourth talk in the session this afternoon was from Linda Cow, who has been working to try and make associations across people of different ancestries. So we're working in uh, almost the same ways that uh, Dr. Ostrander was working in dogs. One of the benefits of nephrology is there have been a number of registries, large population registries, of course, the USRDS is probably the best of these registries, but their registries within multiple disease groups as well that may provide a basis for a number of these studies if DNA and genetic material is obtained. But Prabir, you actually went to some of the USRDS registry discussions. Can you tell us about those? I went to some of the USRDS and DOPS discussions. I, I think the one of the things that came out particularly from the, the DOPS was that there's a huge mortality in dialysis patients uh, in the first year. And uh, there was a very elegant study which dissected out the, the, uh, <clears throat> the different factors that resulted in that increased morbidity. And not, not surprisingly, the biggest uh, uh, contributor to that increased mortality in the first year was catheter use. And then there were other modifiable factors, but really catheters uh, and, you know, up to 80% of patients start dialysis with a catheter. That really seems to be a big problem. Prabir, we've been worried about catheters now for a very long time. What can we do to decrease the number of patients who start with these plastic devices? I think we need to shift our emphasis from the dialysis population to the CKD population. And it's not easy to do multiple logistical communication, education, insurance issues, but I think that's the only way that we're going to reduce this huge incident rate of patients starting dialysis with catheters. There have been uh, articles just recently in press that 
suggest that we here in the United States are not doing a very good job in our dialysis program. What you're suggesting, I guess, is that we ought to shift our attention not only to the optimum care of patients in our dialysis units, but earlier on, either in preventive strategies or to intercede with our general practitioners and family practitioners to be able to interact with those patients earlier on so that they never have the opportunity uh, to be to have a catheter, to have the opportunity to have a fistula first. Absolutely. And it, it's not about rocket science. It's about logistics, <laughs> communication, education, interactions. Easier said than done. And we've um, all tried it for a long time. But we must continue working in, in that vein. Absolutely. Millie, in terms of other populations, there were studies and discussions today about living donation and transplant. Can you share with us some of those observations? There were several posters presented today from different parts of the world. There was an interesting uh, poster from North Carolina that where they investigated the uh, effect that uh, legislation providing tax breaks for living donors, the impact that that has had in living donation. And actually, they found that uh, compared to states that do not have such legislation, these tax breaks have not resulted in greater um, living donation at those places. I think that some of it has to do with the fact that the population that donates is usually relatively poor and do not are not in a very high uh, tax bracket and therefore do not benefit from whatever legislation has been passed. There were also reports from the Korean uh, experience about uh, providing incentives for donation and showing that their outcomes have not been affected by providing living donors with monetary incentive for donation. And the Iranians also reported on their follow-up of the living donors that have donated after being offered monetary incentives and the outcomes were relatively good. So from that experience, should we be changing our practice of living-related donation here in the United States? Oh, that is a very contentious topic um, and one that uh, will be addressed in a session tomorrow. Uh, there are two, two camps, the camps that opposed donation incentives 100% and others that in, uh, support some sort of incentive uh, providing medical insurance to these patients, including these patients into Medicare early on, but the jury is still out uh, on that one. So Millie, I'm going to press you a little bit here and, and ask you to come down with a recommendation. Well, if I were uh, I had any power on, on policy making, I will encourage these patients to uh, be to be linked into the Medicare system early, particularly those who do not have medical insurance. A substantial number of our living donors do not have medical insurance, and many of those who have it lose it because of the economic situation of the country right now. Those patients should be provided with access to medical care, and the government should provide that. One of the interesting parts of this meeting, or any big meeting, is to learn more about your own particular field. So in my experience, I like small vessel vasculitis and learned today in that arena that patients who uh, use cocaine 
develop vasculitis. But they don't develop vasculitis from the cocaine. They develop vasculitis from the levamisol, which is used to cut the cocaine. It apparently has the same temperature melting point and the same uh, texture, and so you can decrease the amount of cocaine in a cocaine brick. A completely novel sort of thought, even within my own area that I think I know something about. But one of the fun parts about the meeting is to interact with individuals with whom you have hardly anything uh, to do with pri uh, previously, and more importantly, uh, areas of knowledge which really you know absolutely nothing about. So John, how do you, how do you interact with individuals or try to learn from people uh, in arenas that are very far from your usual daily parlance? Well, when I am thinking about what I'm going to do at the meeting, I usually identify sessions on things that I'm not actively involved in. I don't do much with uh, uh, dialysis patients, even in my clinical practice, as in the acute setting. And I take the opportunity here to learn what the best practices are in managing ESRD patients, particularly in the outpatient unit. Helps me in my teaching, helps me in my practice when we're discharging people from, from the hospital. So, John, do you take a dartboard and you, you throw a dart in the book and figure out what area is, is fundamentally different? How, how do you actually approach that issue? Well, actually, I go to the website just before the meeting and get a handle on what's being presented and start picking out sessions uh, that I think would be instructive to me and plan in advance. The meeting, as everyone knows, is, is huge. And the years I haven't done that haven't been as effective as the years I've actually put a little effort on my way to the meeting to plan what I'm going to do. So you're telling me that the dartboard strategy is really an ancient one and that everybody should go to the web, especially the new, improved ASN website, and figure this out in advance. Absolutely. Praveer, how do you do this? A, a mix, really. You know, I, I think it is important to go through the program, and I try and pick out some sessions that are not in my area. I may have seen a patient with... Uh, say, acute kidney injury, and there was a journals club or a discussion about it. And so I picked out yesterday, I went to one of the AKI sessions. I learned that uh, there's still far more questions than there are answers. So that's one way. The, the other thing that I do recommend, though, is that we have all of these beautiful technological advances that you can put in keywords and, ab and, and you can get out a list mm -hmm. of abstracts that you should go to. I think you should have some lateral thinking. So I pick out a poster session that is sort of linked to my area, but then I just browse through it. I mean, I don't pick out a particular abstract to go to. I just sort of walk through it. And if I see a heading that, you know, that piques my interest, I stop. And then sometimes I just keep going beyond the end of that poster session and I go into the next one and I just look at those, look at those posters. And it may be totally different from what I'm interested in. So, Prabir, put yourself now in the, from the perspective of a very young uh, investigator who has come to this meeting for the first time, and there, uh, Prabir Roy Chowdhury is wandering down the poster path. And what would you suggest to that young investigator to get you interested in what they're doing? If they're at the poster, I, I think some eye contact is really important because then I stop. I, I always stop because that tells me that this person wants to tell me about his or her work. And, and I think that I have always been very open to hear. I mean, if I see somebody making eye contact, 
I say, well, tell me about your poster because it's much easier to learn about a poster that you know very little about by having somebody speak to you about it. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, the advice, my sort of message to young people would be that mid-level and senior people want to see young people present their work. You know, and sometimes I see them cringing at one end of the poster, looking down, doing everything not to catch your eye. I would say, doesn't matter. Just you know, look straight in the eye of the person. Be aggressive. You know, grab that person and say, I want to tell you about my poster. And I think you'll find a lot of people will, will actually uh, come and listen. So, wait, so, so, Prabir, what you're almost suggesting to a certain extent is we should all take lessons from the facilitators on the exhibit floor who are very, very effective <laughs> in, in getting one into the exhibit booth. They're, they're, they're fantastic That's at it. So maybe we should all provide our trainees with that sort of uh, training prior to uh, going to the ASN. Yeah. I, just one other thing about trainees. I, 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 I think a bit of advice in a way for trainees because often you know when you come for the first time to ASN this is huge when i first came to my first big meeting it was just it was a, it was it was just too big and one one of the things that i would say is take things at your own pace you don't have to listen to everything you don't have to go to every every abstract you know just go to some to ones that are interesting uh, do some lateral thinking Ask people in the evening, what did you find interesting? And you'll, you'll get a flavor of the meeting. You don't have to rush to go to every single, uh, every single session that you know, you, you've checked off. I, I would just take it a little bit laid back. One of the advantages this year is the ASN is recording uh, both the slides and the oral discussion of 300 hours of contact time, both from the in-depth courses as well as many of the sessions now. So presumably one will have the opportunity to go back home and listen to some of those talks, either again if one didn't understand them the first time, or perhaps in areas that otherwise you wouldn't have listened to. That, that just makes it a lot easier to just, just go to a few sessions that you're interested in, have a more laid-back attitude, have some more fun. Millie, how do you approach the meeting? Well, usually before we come to the meeting, we amongst the faculty, we decide, well, what areas are you interested in going and going over and learning about. And so we sort of distribute between ourselves the different areas. Usually it can be the transplant area or it can be electrolytes or acid base or bone metabolism. And each one goes and listens to different lectures. And when we go back home, then we get all together and, and discuss the lectures that were more interesting, the posters that were more relevant, the free communications. Um, in my particular case, I usually go through the day at glance. It helps me a lot to identify which particular session, symposium, clinical um, science uh, conference I can attend. Also for the meeting within the meeting, that uh, menu of the different lectures is very useful. So Millie, what advice would you give to the young investigator that wants to have Millie Samaniego stop and uh, examine their work? Well, I would say I would agree that direct contact and a smile, or even if they see the uh, 
person standing and looking at the poster approached them and said, do you have a question? What would you like to know about this program? Let me explain to you uh, what is the hypothesis behind this study. Unfortunately, I agree that the fellows are a little shy. And uh, what perhaps what we should do is to tell them that this is a great opportunity to not only have their um, research critique in a friendly environment, but also an opportunity to get ideas from the senior people that go read these abstracts and say, well, have you considered to look at this particular question in this way or this other way? So John, I'll give you the last uh, word on this. What would you tell a young investigator to get John Cedar to stop? I think I would just echo what, what you both said. I, I think it's, it's absolutely right that you just stop and talk to people. And I, I think I always tell our fellows, you'll be surprised how welcoming almost everybody is. Uh, the faculty, the senior investigators, people from other institutions are, are always interested in talking. I want to thank all of you for a really interesting and stimulating and wide-ranging discussion on this second day of this portion of Reno Week. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. This is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology. <laughs>